Welcome to all of you who have joined this podcast. Today, I'm going to be doing a third episode on the life of Charles Haswell Campagnac. The last two episodes, I've dealt a lot with his um, legal cases and what it was like to practice law in Burma in the 20s. But today, I'm going to deal with some of the characters that he met, British characters largely, that he met during his time there and who he found uh, rather extraordinary. So I will read extracts from his chapter dealing with these people. First is a man called Ernest Minnett. Ernest Minnett was one of the most powerfully built men I have ever met, was well over six feet in height, broad of shoulder, and had the largest wrists that I had ever seen on any man. He'd been appointed manager of John Dickinson and Sons, the paper manufacturers who had a branch in Rangoon. As a member of this firm, he was eligible to be a member of the Rangoon Gymkhana Club, which was exclusively for upper-class Europeans. He played football soccer for the Rangoon Gymkhana Club and was one of their most outstanding players. He could kick a football from one end of the field to the other. When he joined Arnold, that's the Arnold we heard about in the last episode, the publisher or editor of the uh, the uh, Rangoon Times, he lost his position as the manager of John Dickinson. That was because, of course, that uh, the Europeans and the, the British system was very much, against, very much against Arnold and his alleged defamation of the two uh, government officials. So the young men of the Rangoon Jim Carner Club cut Ernest Minnett dead after he joined Arnold, as they considered him to be a traitor to their race. Minnett's brother was manager of Longman Greens, the publishers at Calcutta. He used to visit Rangoon from time to time with a man called Sterling, who was reputed to be the strongest European in Calcutta, although his appearance did not give one any idea of his strength, as he always wore a monocle and looked a dandy. One night, the two Minettes, Sterling and I, were at the Minto Mansion Hotel. Ernest Minette and I were playing billiards, while his brother and Sterling were standing at the bar having drinks. Whilst Ernest and I were playing, about 10 or 12 young Englishmen, members of the Jim Carner Club, came into the room and started passing remarks about Minette, calling him yellow, coward, nigger lover, and other unpleasant names. I could see Minette's face becoming paler and paler. He suddenly put down his cue and knocked the man nearest him down, at which he is surrounded by all the other Englishmen who had come into the room. In a couple of strides, Minette's brother and Sterling had walked up to these men and started knocking them down like ninepins. I've never seen man knocked out in such a manner except in the prize ring. After World War I began, Ernest Minette's brother in Calcutta had a motor car accident and had concussion of the brain, so Ernest was sent to accompany his brother to England. The moment he got there, Ernest Minette enlisted as a private. He'd been trying to do this in Burma without success, probably for the reasons that um, uh, Charles mentions. He was soon promoted to the rank of captain and served with great gallantry during the war. That's the First World War, being awarded the DSO and the Military Cross. 
When he came on leave to receive his decorations at the hands of the king, he spent the night with a lady of the streets. When he woke up in the morning, he found that he had been robbed of all his clothes, including his uniform. He found some old newspapers in the room and covering himself with these, got into a cab and went to a military tailor's where he remained until they fitted him with a new uniform. And from there, he went straight to the palace. This information was conveyed to me in a letter written by Minette's sister, who was in the British Secret Service. One day after the war, Minette arrived in my office accompanied by four Gurkhas. He'd become completely grey and was wearing the uniform of an Indian Army officer. I never saw him again, and the last I heard about him was that he was a colonel in a camel regiment in Arabia. But a few days after he visited me, the Gurkhas he had brought with him turned up at my chambers and said that Minette had taken them somewhere in Upper Burma and stranded them and that they had no money to return to India. I asked them what they'd been doing in Upper Burma, and they replied that they'd been digging. I'd asked them if they'd found anything, and they said no. The reason for Manette taking these men to dig in Upper Burma will be apparent when I deal with Ian Nicholson, which I will do now. Ian Nicholson, at this time, lived in a village called Palake, near Chorksway in Upper Burma. Apologies to the Burmese uh, who are listening to my pronunciations of these names, but I hope you understand where I'm talking about. But Ian Nicholson had a large farm. He told me he'd come to Burma as a sailor on a sailing vessel and that on coming ashore he'd found fighting going on between the Hindus and Muslims and that the Commissioner of Police was recruiting any Englishman he could get hold of as sergeants of police. Nicholson said he thought this was just the place for him. So he deserted his ship and enlisted as a European sergeant in the Rangoon Town Police. He'd been in the excise department for a number of years before he retired and settled down at Palake. He'd married a Burmese girl and one of his daughters is now married and in England. According to Nicholson, during the reign of King Tibor, the Bombay Burma Company had sent one million rupees by messengers to the king in payment for timber, which they had extracted from the forest. These messengers had been waylaid by robbers on the way to Mandalay and the robbers were said to have buried the money somewhere on Nicholson's farm. The money had never been recovered as the robbers had been put to death by Tibor's men. Minette, who was very friendly with Nicholson and paid several visits to Blake, must have heard this story, which explains why he came back to search for the money. Another chap he mentions is Wilson T. Lidbetter was a tall, angular, bearded man of about 60 years of age. He came from a Quaker family and had been educated partly in England and partly in Australia. His father had been a ship's captain and on retirement started a ship chandlery business in Bombay. When Lidbetter's father died, he sold the business and for some time imported horses from Australia to India. He was a very keen racing man and like so many people who try and make money on the turf, lost everything he had. He came to Burma as an agent of the, an insurance company and afterwards founded the Burma Critic in Mandalay. In this paper, he attacked quite a number of people with the result that several actions for libel were brought against him from time to time. But somehow or other, he managed to wriggle out of these cases and continued 
continued to publish defamatory articles about anyone who displeased him. His marriage, birth and death announcements were headed New Partnerships, Fresh Arrivals and Cold Storage. He was a racy and pungent writer and his paper had a large circulation all over Burma. When Arnold severed his connection with the Rangoon Times, he entered into a partnership with Lidbetter in running the Burma Critic, and the paper was then published in Rangoon. So he then goes on to say that uh, Arnold couldn't work with Lidbetter, and so uh, he bought him out. And Lidbetter, Lidbetter, returned to Mandalay and started another paper, which he called the Burma Magnet. But he was also appointed the stipendary steward of the Mandalay Racecourse and performed the duties of official measurer, handicapper and starter. And it's what he's, what uh, Charles Campagnac's about to say, which tells us about racing at that time in Mandalay, or maybe in all of Burma. In Mandalay, races were started by the waving of a flag. When the white flag went down, the horses started. But if the starter thought there'd been a false start, a red flag was waved after the horses had gone about half a furlong. It used to be said that the red flag would always be waved until at such time as the stipendary steward's horse or the horse that he wanted to win had got a flying start. Although Charles Campagnac mentions a number of other people, there's only one other chap that I'll deal with in this episode, and that is a man called Henry Paubet de la Haye de Cassimbrut. As his name indicates, Henry, as he's always called by his friends, was a Frenchman. How, why, or when he came to Burma, I never discovered. Nicholson told me that during the Hindu Mohammedan riots, which were taking place when he landed in Burma, he saw Henry carrying a banner on which was inscribed the Star and Crescent, leading a group of Mohammedans through the streets. It was soon after I came to Burma that I first met Henry at the house of a wealthy Mohammedan named Naikwara, who had an estate at Elephant Point at the mouth of the river. Henry was there entertaining the guests and serving them with various kinds of liquors. Sometime after this, I was returning in a hackney carriage from playing cricket when I saw Henry walking along the road with his head down as if he was in deep contemplation. I stopped the carriage and asked Henry if he wanted a lift. He said he'd be obliged if I'd drive him to the Pegu Club, which was a club to which only members of the Indian Civil Service and managers of large companies were admitted as members. When we got to the club, Henry asked me to wait for him, saying he wouldn't be long. After a little while, I heard high words passing between Henry and someone inside the club. I then heard a woman's voice speaking with a French accent, saying, he's no rogue, he's my long-lost brother. When Henry came out of the club, he told me he had had a dispute with a forest officer over the timber contract and that the lady was his sister, whom he had not seen for many years. He got into the carriage and we drove to my chambers. When we arrived there, Henry took off his coat, walked into my kitchen. From that time, he remained with me off and on for a number of years. Whilst he was with me, he took charge of my kitchen, for which he was a most excellent chef, and I don't think I have ever tasted such delicious omelettes as he used to make. He is able to provide a meal for any number of guests at very short notice. 
Very few servants remained long while Henry was there, because if they displeased him, he'd bring down a saucepan on their heads. One Mohammedan servant I had, however, remained and took all the chastisement that Henry meted out to him. This man afterwards worked in the houses of wealthy Englishmen for very large wages. Henry used to leave me suddenly without any notice, but whenever he left, he always placed an account of the money I'd given him on the table with any balance of change he had over. He would be away sometimes for weeks or even months, and then meeting me in the street would return with me to my chambers without any explanation as just if he had never been away at all. Henry was very well educated and knew Greek and Latin, and I sometimes thought he might be a renegade priest. He'd often say he was going to tell me all about himself and show me papers which said he had in a box, but he never did so. He did once tell me that he'd been an officer of the French Foreign Legion and had fought a duel with his colonel over a girl, which led to him deserting the service. Just before he died, Henry was staying with a Mohammedan at Prome. The nearest priest lived about 30 miles away, and Henry asked that he should be sent for. The priest shrived him and returned to his headquarters. Soon afterwards, Henry died, and the priest returned to bury him, but found that he had already been buried by the Mohammedan community in a Mohammedan graveyard. It may have been that Henry had been a secret agent of the French government. In the time of King Tibor, there were many French people at Tibor's court, and it, and it was because the British feared that the French would become masters in Upper Burma that they had annexed it in 1886. Well, I'll finish this episode here, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you all soon with another episode uh, covering another chapter of this book. Thank you very much for listening.